Vice Nation. Greetings, Sockologers, and welcome to Device Nation, the only medical device podcast certified by all major tissue banks as osteoinductive, osteoconductive, and osteoempathetic. A little hint of what we're going to be talking about today. This is Kevin Brown, the original Code Brown. And look, I know a lot of you are still stuck back at the beginning. What is a Sockdologer? Two pieces to that definition. An exceptional person or thing. And that's what you are for listening to this show, just trying to get better at this thing. And then the second one I really love, a forceful blow. And that's what we want to be, right? A forceful blow for good in the lives of the people around us. So speaking of Code Brown, and I know a lot of you are saying, you know, can we please not talk about it? And you know, I don't like to talk about it either. So we're going to change it just a little bit into something that's actually a little entertaining. Many years ago, I worked with a nurse who would page me when it was time for the rep to come back to the room. She would page me on the overhead speaker system Code Brown to room seven, Code Brown to room seven. And there I was walking back to that OR with a chest full of pride thinking I was number one, only to find out later what a Code Brown actually was and realizing that I was unfortunately number two. Oh my, well, nobody wants to be number two. So let's focus on number one. The first step of the behavioral influence stairway model as part of our continuing FBI Special Agent Series, inspired by friend of Device Nation and former FBI Behavioral Science Unit Chief, Dr. Greg Vecchi. And that step is empathy. And I believe it to be the most important step on this entire stairway. Why? Because it touches so many things and it touches everybody. If you're a surgeon listening to this show, this is going to affect your patient's view of you. This is going to affect the reps' interactions with the customers they work with. And honestly, it's going to touch every relationship you have. And 90% of life is relationships. Now, one of the things that Dr. Vecchi said in a paper of his, and I'm going to quote it, it is important to note that these stages occur in sequence and one stage cannot be skipped in order to get to the next stage faster. And that is so true as reps We want to come in and go straight from shake of the hand to behavior change and influence. It does not work that way. This is the turnstile you have to go through right here, this step, empathy, to advance to the next step, which is rapport and trust, and then onward to the last step, which is influence and behavior change. So let's define this thing. What is empathy? Empathy is the ability to emotionally understand what other people feel, see things from their point of view, and imagine yourself in their place. There is no I in empathy as we look at how it's spelled. And another way to remember it is the first two letters, E-M. If you flip that around, reverse it, that's me, right? Well, just like that Netflix series, Stranger Things, and the whole concept of the upside down Empathy is just that. It is you in reverse. It's me in reverse because it's all about the person sitting on the other side. Now, some of you are probably thinking right now, well, what about tactical empathy? I've been hearing that a lot in sales programs. And the definition of that is the deliberate influencing of your negotiating counterparts' emotions for the ultimate purpose of building trust-based influence and securing deals. Well, you know what? There's one word to describe that, and that is manipulation. 
The definition of manipulation being the action of manipulating someone in a clever or unscrupulous way. So you're thinking to yourself, well, you know what? I'm in sales. That's what this is all about. You're thinking in professional businesses. It's all about getting from point A to point B, right? Well, au contraire, confrere, I humbly submit that in long-term relationship scenarios, which medical device is, right? We've talked about it. Finite group of people in close proximity over a protracted period of time. I do not believe in that scenario that this model is appropriate. Now, in the purest sense of the word, the behavioral influence stairway model is a manipulative model because it's all about walking the criminal the hostage taker up this ladder to effect behavior change at the very top. Put the gun down, release the hostages, right? It's all about affecting an outcome, a transaction. Well, we're not dealing with criminals, I hope. In this job, we're dealing with people, people that we care about. And I think that's what changes everything. Now, we're going to take a few episodes to give this particular subject the attention it richly deserves. But let's lay down some groundwork first. The first thing that has to happen before empathy can even occur is a question. That's what sets this whole thing in motion. That's the gas in the tank. That's the diesel. That's the electricity, whatever. The car doesn't leave the driveway. Empathy doesn't leave the driveway until you ask a question. And then that's followed up by active listening. We're going to talk about that. And then and only then do you get the opportunity to express empathy to what has just been said. So true story, my wife and I went out to dinner recently and a gentleman sat down at the table, introduced himself as a drummer. I said, that's awesome. I play electric guitar. I played in bands for 30 years and then asked him an open-ended question. And he spoke for 45 minutes about everything related to him. And then at the end of this monologue, he said, I really appreciate talking to you guys and excused himself. So it wasn't until we got in a car that my wife looked at me and she goes, you know, he didn't ask you a single question about you, which is odd with musicians because we love to talk about this stuff with each other, right? It was completely one-sided. Now, my feelings were not hurt and I actually enjoyed a lot of what he had to share. But here's the takeaway. By not asking me anything, then he denied me an opportunity to respond, which then denied him an opportunity to show empathy and keep that exchange going. Now, these are necessary components for rapport and ultimately any relationship, right? It all starts with a question. We've talked about that on the show a lot. There's life in the interrogative and death in a declarative. You say something that starts with a period, nobody has an opportunity to respond to that. So it's all about learning to ask questions and then let what other people say help you form your next question. Now, what makes this so hard? I mean, you're thinking, it's just asking a question, Kevin. That's kind of silly. I know how to ask questions. I am fast-forwarding this podcast to the amazing conversation with Dr. Roy Sanders, one of the titans of trauma. And trust me, I'm just as excited about hearing that as you are. But hold on, partner. I want you to consider two things that I think may help you things that I have personally struggled with. Number one, if we're walking around with a big old me on our forehead, if we spell empathy, M-E-P-A-T-H-Y, well, guess what? One of two things is going to happen. 
Number one, you're not going to ask anybody any questions because, frankly, you don't care. It's all about you anyway. Number two, if you do deign to ask someone a question, then it will ultimately be self-centered and you will not be getting into their world at all. You're only asking questions for something that makes you the prime beneficiary. It brings your progress going up this staircase to a screeching halt. So here is a crazy story for you. I had a neighbor many years ago who was one of the more self-centered people I've ever met in my life. And on this particular day, he was on an epic rant at the mailbox with one of my other neighbors. And she was being very patient as this went on for nearly an hour until finally a crack appeared and he asked a question. And I'm going to quote verbatim what he asked her. He said, well, enough about me. What do you think about me? She said she nearly fell into the ditch. Couldn't believe that he said that. And I look back at that whole exchange, and number one, I'm in awe. The total lack of self-awareness that you could even say something like that with a straight face and not be trolling somebody. As crazy as that sounds, I thought, you know, there is a potential in all of us to do just that. Maybe not as extreme as that, but... Everything we say, all of our interactions with people are just about us, and it really hurts us in the long run, right? It keeps us from advancing to empathy and then onward to rapport and trust and ultimately a good relationship with people, right? Number two, it is genuinely difficult to stay in the other person's frame over a protracted period of time asking questions, right? I struggle with that. It's real easy to check off the box and say, okay, well, I asked you a question. I'm done. I'm living large in the interrogatory. Well, not so fast. That question is going to deliver an answer to you, and that answer should deliver you the next question. I often get distracted. Somebody gives me an answer that triggers something now I want to talk about, and now we're not moving the ball down the field anymore. I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. I was driving home from the airport the other day with my wife. She looked at the clock, and she said, let's do this. I want you to stay in the interrogatory for just five minutes. And I thought, okay, I've been talking about this on the podcast. I can do this with one microphone tied behind my back. So we started it. And honestly, I felt like I ran out of gas at about 20 seconds. No, it was better than that. About three and a half minutes, I hit the wall. And I thought, this is such a discipline that has to be practiced of continuing that flow. If I had a sales program, this would be my role playing. I want you to be able to continue to ask questions because I find that the longer people talk, usually the gold is towards the end. They don't give you that stuff on the front end. You find out the really good stuff when you linger in your subject's frame. So allow me to be Captain Obvious here for a second. The longer we linger in our subject's frame, and I hate even saying that, it sounds so clinical, but the longer we stay in their frame, dots get connected. The question that inspires the question, that inspires the question. You just find really good stuff that you never would have found at the first question because you just couldn't have linked to it, right? And lastly, 
It's all about vulnerability. People will let their walls down and make themselves vulnerable to people that they feel are on their side. When you're asking questions that are not about you, but about them, that's exactly what you're communicating, that you are important to me, I'm going to listen to you, and you're important enough to me that I'm going to keep asking you questions and ask for more detail and context about what you just shared with me. People respond to this. I respond to it. It's rare, and it touches people. One thing that really touched me is our next guest agreeing to come on the show and letting me ask him a quantity of, hopefully, quality questions, and that is Dr. Roy Sanders, former president of OTA, almost 40 design patents in orthopedic implants and instrumentation. Does ALPS and Trigen ring a bell with you? I certainly hope so. Almost 200 research works, past chairman of the Committee on Trauma for both the AOS and the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society. He has published several textbooks on orthopedic trauma and is presently the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. We are speaking to the one, the only, Dr. Roy Sanders. Welcome to the show, sir. Well, thank you for having me. It is such an honor to have you on Device Nation as you are an absolute icon in the orthopedic trauma space. And I look forward to asking you about your patents, plates, positions. But first, let's go back to New York, Dr. Sanders. What put you on the path to medicine? My family does have uh, some connection. My grandfather was a physician in uh, Europe. They fled uh, and came to the States during the war. So I guess there's some background there. But when I was a kid, I either got fired or I quit every job I ever had. And I decided that uh, I needed to be my own boss because uh, otherwise I was just going to, it was never going to work for me. And uh, the thing about uh, medicine is you, you get to help people. I had a little bit of background from my uh, grandfather, and you could be your own person and kind of go where you want to. I like the fact that, you know, you could work anywhere in the United States. It was a window into an alternate universe. You can basically match uh, your personality with the type of medicine that most suits you. You're not kind of forced into a a job. It's, It's a profession. For my personality, it just worked out perfect. What was your uh, program experience over there in Nashville? So that's a funny story. So I was a resident at the Joint Diseases in New York, which is an orthopedic hospital uh, that did not have an emergency room at the time. We had uh, a gentleman named Howard Rosen who actually brought AO to America in the late 60s. So he was one of my first mentors. We didn't have any trauma. It was all cold, uh, non-union work. So uh, I ended up going to shock trauma during my uh, residency for three months. Uh, And uh, back then they did uh, five states, minimum three organ system injury, and they had uh, five helicopters. And so it was was a civilian mass unit at the time. And uh, it really uh, got me very, very excited uh, to go into uh, uh, trauma. And when I went to Nashville, I ended up working with Mark Swinkowski, who just came back from his fellowship. I ended up spending uh, a lot of time at Nashville General Hospital as well as the main hospital. That was the time that they had seat belts, but not every car had a shoulder belt. And so people were living, but they were still getting thrown around the cars. The cars didn't really have airbags yet. Uh, And so there was just a lot of trauma and not very much uh, equipment to fix these folks. 
It was kind of just the beginning of the start of trauma as a real discipline. It wasn't at the time. At least orthopedic trauma was not. The AOASIF Jack McDaniels Memorial Fellowship, what an honor for you to be selected to go on a European tour, so to speak. What was your experience like across the pond? So uh, when I was in Nashville, at the end, uh, I then I needed a job. And so they hired me in Nashville at Vanderbilt. And I ran Nashville General Hospital which uh, orthopedics, which uh, I was I, I was the chief of orthopedics. I was also the only orthopedist there. That's kind of the way that works. And I had a couple of residents, uh, one of them with Kathy Kramer and one of them was uh, Chip Rout. Uh, and uh, we kind of uh, uh, taught each other a lot of uh, orthopedic trauma while we were there. But uh, clearly, uh, when they offered me a job to be faculty, I said I needed to go uh, and learn from the masters back then, which were in Europe. And so uh, I was selected uh, for this uh, fellowship and uh, was able to go and uh, spend time with uh, Bernd Claudi in uh, Munich, uh, Regazzoni uh, in uh, Basel. But I spent most of my time uh, in core with um, Thomas Rudy, the gentleman in uh, Europe at the time, all the orthopedic trauma was done by general surgeons. And all these three gentlemen were uh, general surgeons. And Dr. Rudy was probably the best soft tissue handling surgeon I've I've ever seen. He would do a a, a femur, a rotting. Uh, Then he would uh, do a thyroid. He would do an uh, ankle or a pilon fracture, which is what he was famous for. And then he'd do an esophageal resection and a gastric pull through. uh, And we'd be you know, eating lunch by two in the afternoon. Uh, it's just a completely uh, different way of doing things. And it really, I, I think it improved me dramatically as a surgeon. So uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, and I came back with a lot of uh, knowledge, a lot of uh, understanding about implants, about what could be done, what couldn't be done. Uh, and uh, surgical techniques. So that was a very, very worthwhile fellowship. So I believe the next two stops on your journey were at Vanderbilt and Harborview. Tell us a little bit about your experiences at both of these institutions. So I went back to Vanderbilt. The one thing that Dr. Swinkowski uh, told me that I'll never forget, he told me a lot of stuff, but the, the, the two things he told me was you have to make yourself indispensable. And if you want to be famous, pick something that nobody knows anything about and just really, you know, raise the bar and contribute. Uh, And at the time that was calcaneal fractures. So I started doing calcaneal fractures, learning them, reading about them, you know, trying to understand what was going on. They're very difficult fractures, at least back then to fix. Uh, And when uh, my wife didn't care for Nashville uh, in the eighties too much, So we ended up going to Tampa. And when I uh, went to Tampa, uh, I started uh, to do calcaneal fractures. Dr. Helfit was in uh, Tampa at the time. Dr. Master just left. And we ended up uh, splitting things. He would do a lot of pelvis and acetabulum. I would do a lot of lower extremity uh, and do uh, a lot of calcaneal fractures. But people started sending me trauma referrals, ankles, pelons, feet, crushed feet. Uh, list franks uh, it was more than uh, I had any training in uh, and so I spoke to my chairman at the time because we were at the university Phil Spiegel 
Uh, and he said, well, the only person that really knows uh, uh, trauma to the lower extremity, uh, foot and ankle, would be Sig Hansen. So you need to go to Seattle and uh, spend time with Sig. At the time, Mark Swinkowski was up there and Chip Rout was up there. And I actually stayed with Chip uh, for the time that I was in Seattle. And I, I spent all the time with uh, Dr. Hansen. Uh, and uh, learned uh, all his techniques. And Harborview is uh, just uh, kind of like shock trauma. It's a regional referral center. And back then, uh, Idaho, Alaska, Oregon, everybody was shipping everything uh, to Harborview. So there was a lot of trauma, a lot of reconstructive work, very, very informative in terms of uh, training. So I was fortunate in that I got a lot of training from a lot of different people. And it kind of forces you to open your mind and not be dogmatic in what you do. Uh, and I think that uh, stood me in good stead going forward in my career. So you set up shop in Nashville, and I believe it wasn't too long after that, that you packed your bags and headed south to Tampa. What inspired the move? Well, I actually like Nashville and I like Vanderbilt. My wife uh, didn't care for the town. We lived in uh, New York and she lived in uh, Miami for a while. So she was used to the water, lived uh, by the water and wanted to get back to Florida. And so uh, I had a, I had to find a job. So I uh, was fortunate enough to find a job again uh, through the AO uh, connections uh, through their network at the time with Dr. Helford and Dr. Uh, mass. Dr. Rosen was alive at that time, and Dr. Spiegel, I was able to get a job at the University of South Florida uh, in Tampa, and that's why I went over there, and that was a good decision. We throw AO and ASIF around like everybody knows what we're talking about, but to the listeners on the show that don't know what we're talking about, could you give a quick synopsis of what these organizations are? Sure. So the, it's the same organization. Uh, one is uh, uh, the German word AO, Arbeitsgemeinschaft für Osteosynthesis Fragen, and in English it's the Association uh, for the Study of Internal Fixation. This dates back to a gentleman named Maurice Mueller, and uh, I'll give you a little uh, sidebar about him. Uh, his dad was a physician, and uh, he didn't quite know what he wanted to go into, so he started traveling around Europe. He was from Europe, uh, he's from Switzerland. Uh, and uh, he trained with a guy named Danis, who uh, was in Belgium, uh, who was uh, the father of osteosynthesis, which is plate fixation of fractures. When he came back to Switzerland, he started to do that uh, with the ski injuries and realized that, in fact, these people were getting back to work uh, within a year of him fixing them with plates and screws. This is in the late 50s. This is the beginning of this. He got a contract with the Swiss insurance companies, medical insurance companies, to prove that he could get these people back to work within a year. So uh, he did a whole study, uh, and uh, he was able to do that uh, and uh, succeeded. As a result, he needed plates and screws. So then he started a company with Straumann, who was a manufacturer, to design uh, plates and screws. He got biomechanical engineers, and uh, he set up a shop, uh, where he started to train other surgeons in this, ran courses, is the first person to run courses, trained everybody in osteosynthesis. And then that went from the ankle to the arm, to the leg, to the tibia. And this just developed uh, and kind of took off. So by the 60s, the AO, uh, which is the short form, uh, started teaching these courses in a place called Davos, 
uh, and then eventually in Switzerland, and then eventually brought them uh, all throughout Europe and to the States. And these courses ended up uh, teaching all the residents and uh, existing orthopedic surgeons in the world internal fixation, which is a fixation of fractures using plates and screws. And at some point, uh, you mentioned uh, nails uh, in passing, but intramedullary nails were started by the Germans, a guy named Kuncher during World War II. Uh, they started putting these nails in the uh, uh, Luftwaffe pilots who would crash their uh, planes and then be able to, they'd have fractures of their uh, thigh bone, their femur or their tibia, and be able to put uh, these nails in these rods. And that allowed them to get back up and fly. Uh, this became very popular in Germany. Uh, and the Germans didn't want to use plates and screws. So instead of arguing with them, Mueller said, okay, well, let's bring you in to the AO, and that's how he got nails into the uh, into the armamentarium of fixation of fractures as well. So by the 70s and 80s, they were the only system. They were a complete system of fixation of fractures. And if you want to learn anything about how to fix a fracture, you needed to train with the with with those surgeons from the AO. He was an organizational genius because of his marketing, branding, and vertical. Uh, his entire shop was vertically uh, aligned, you know, from the teaching to the to the biomechanics, to the engineers, uh, to the design work, to the uh, metallurgy, 510K or, you know, uh, patent approval uh, and then uh, sales and distribution worldwide. It's brilliant. Well, while we're talking about nails, we've got to go here for a minute, Dr. Sanders. You hold over 30 design patents on orthopedic implants and instruments. Just amazing to me, uh, your, uh, your prolific activity in that space. One of your most colorful contributions was the Trigen Nail with Smith & Nephew. Tell me what it was like putting that project together and working with another prolific surgeon entrepreneur, Dr. Tony Russell. Yeah, that was uh, just a, a wonderful experience for me. I'm, I'm blessed uh, to know Tony and to be able to have worked with him and uh, design all these nails and uh, really raise the bar. What happened to us is so I was in Tampa doing trauma uh, and uh, nails uh, inherently are, are better for long bone fractures, thighs and, and, and tibias, uh, leg bones. Uh, because if you uh, uh, do it right, then they can, patient can walk on it almost immediately. If you use a plate and screws, you have to wait three months or, or the bone won't heal. But with a nail, the bone can heal around uh, the nail so that you can actually be uh, a functional while it's healing. So it's a really good thing. But the nails that uh, were uh, available were terrible. Uh, the instrumentation didn't exist. And uh, one day I had a polytrauma patient, which means uh, they were multiply injured. Uh, and he uh, had broken his uh, arm bone, the humerus, his thigh bone, the femur, his tibia, his leg bone. On the back table, they had six sets of instruments, right? So they had instruments and implants, two trays for the humerus, uh, two trays for the femur, two trays for the tibia. And every set was different, right? Nothing matched. Uh, and uh, when you start doing all this, you know, the stuff gets dirty. You, they they kind of put it in a basin and then uh, uh, with water and then, you, you know, they give you the tools back again. But the tools were all jumbled up uh, and it was it was uh, a nightmare. 
Uh, and at that point, I, I decided uh, we need a system of nails. Uh, and uh, just so everything had one set of instruments, everything was universal. Uh, and then you build up a, a system of nails based on that. Uh, and so I actually wrote all that down. I drew it all out. And uh, I went to um, Smith Nephew uh, and I told him this. And they said, well, that's wonderful. That's great. Interestingly, we're kind of doing something like that with Dr. Russell. And if you want to participate, you should go uh, have a talk with Dr. Russell. Uh, and Dr. Russell uh, is a little bit my senior. So I was a very young guy. So he was already uh, very well established. He designed the Russell Taylor nail. And so it was very uh, scary for me to go talk to him. But I presented all this to him and he said, you know, I think this would be great. Let's work together. I can tell you that uh, I went to Memphis. Uh, we had a back then you could get a direct flight in the morning. I come home at night through a direct flight from Tampa to Memphis. And I went uh, every month for, well, for lots of years, but every month for the first three years uh, to develop this system. Back then, the companies really uh, were trying to just really let the physicians uh, design, uh, you know, let surgeons design instruments and implants for surgeons. And so uh, it was almost like a kid in candy store. You know, you had the engineers, you told them what you wanted. They made prototypes. You looked at them, you tried them in cadaver lab, you tweaked them until they were right. And uh, when they were right, then we came out with a system and the system back then had a lot of uh, innovation in it. Uh, and I think that's the, the key thing. You want to innovate all the time. So we took the best ideas. We came up with some of our own ideas and we put them all together. I, I would have to say that at this point in time, you know, 30 years later, most nailing systems look like the original trigen system, uh, which is, means that the ideas we had uh, were good and everybody uh, understood that they had value to a surgeon. And obviously, other systems have improved on that original design. Uh, but the basics of all of this uh, is, I think, really from uh, Tony and my work on Trigen. And so we're very proud of that. Very proud. I will never forget working with a surgeon who was evaluating nail systems. And when my particular nail was attached to the inserter and handed to him, he looked at me and looked genuinely disappointed. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? And he said, and I quote, it's not a pretty color. <laughs> And instantly, and I mean this as the highest compliment, Dr. Sanders, you became uh, Newman on Seinfeld to me. I was kind of going, Sanders. <laughs> I loved the aesthetic design work on that system, colored nails. Yeah. Uh, just the everything about it had a real aesthetic, and I just wanted to, to compliment you on that. You don't see that a lot in instrument and implant design. Well, thank you. Good. So that, that was, uh, we try to make a universal nail. And one of the problems with the femoral nail back then was that uh, you could either put it in recon mode, which is two screws up the head and neck, or you could put it uh, down uh, the trochanters, right? Uh, greater, lesser, right? Yeah. But uh, we had a five-hole uh, configuration that let you do both on the same nail. So that if you put the nail down and you want to go up the neck or you want to just do a regular, you could. The problem with that is we antiverted the nail, which we wanted to do. Uh, and so you needed rights and lefts. Uh, and so uh, we wanted right to be red. 
but um, the anodization didn't work. So we got right to be rose and uh, left was lime. Uh, and that worked really well. And I think that they use those colors now universally for lefts and rights when they don't have a universal nail or even plating system now. Uh, and we had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> the nemesis of so many young surgeons I worked with many years ago was distal targeting and finding the piriformis fossa. And I, I was just curious about, uh, especially on the distal targeting side, tricks that you've developed over the years to make that easy and would love to hear about uh, SureShot. That, that seems really cool. Yeah, so um, the, the, the tricks for distal uh, locking uh, have to do we're just learning how to cite it. Uh, and so one of the, the easiest tricks for any orthopedist that's listening or, or, or resin that's listening is when you have a C-arm uh, and you get perfect circles, what you should really do then is mag it up. And then uh, if you mag it up to 2X, you'll actually see the whole screen on the fluoroscopy unit will be the circle. Uh, so that makes it a little easier. And then usually what the, the the techs don't do is they don't line the leg up the way the surgeon's addressing it. So uh, they may have it upside down or inside out, which then when you start moving your hand, it doesn't uh, uh, parallel your motion. So once you do that, then it's easy. Then you just, you know, the tip of the drill, uh, a bisects and one plane and then the other 90 degrees to that. And then you probably... Uh, should get it right in. We use a very, very sharp uh, drill tip so that it actually catches the bone and doesn't slip off the bone. But um, it's still a lot of radiation. One of the last things we did in TriGen was come up with SureShot. And SureShot uh, is a way uh, to use um, electromagnetic uh, markers inside the nail to give you a virtual picture of the, of the hole in the nail, and then uh, under live time without fluoroscopy, without radiation, you can actually find the hole. It's kind of like a computer game, uh, and then just drill it. And you can actually see if you're moving or you're not aligned because it's live time, because there's uh, something on the drill that allows you to interface with the, uh, with the nail. So we put a wire down the nail. It stops just in front of the hole. Uh, and then when you put this uh, attachment to the drill, uh, then the drill interfaces with the with the wire down the nail on the uh, screen, and it allows you to find the hole. And you can also put the screw in the same way. And now we actually have a way to measure the depth of the screw that you need to. So uh, that's that's a radiation free uh, device put in distal locks. One patent I saw your name attached to was an intramedullary nail with non metal spacer. Tell me what's going on with that one. So screw holes are difficult to get into, right? So uh, at some point, uh, there is a dynamic hole uh, in a nail, right? There's a slot. right? Uh, and uh, the slot uh, is easier to put the screw into uh, because it um, uh, is, you can do it in an angle, but then the screw wouldn't be a solid screw because it would slop around in the nail. And if you wanted it to be a static screw hole, uh, it wouldn't work if it was crooked in a, in a in a slot, right? So I came up with the idea that we should put a PLLA plug uh, in that slot. And the advantage of that is then you can uh, drill through it. You see it, you don't know. It doesn't matter what angle you're at, but it's uh, going to be a stiff 
uh, uh, whole, right? Uh, because the, it, it's it's a it's a resorbable uh, biological plastic. So the screw is through there. It's easier to put the screw in, but it's still a static hole. But uh, it it's a PLLA or, or a different type of uh, polylactic acid uh, composite. It'll melt away, dissolve over time, and you can determine uh, how soon you want it to dissolve. And so then you have a static hole that becomes a dynamic hole. So that was the idea behind that. Uh, it never uh, was uh, done in practice, but uh, I thought that was a really great idea. <laughs> they didn't want to manufacture it. So. One thing that I always thought was a good idea, I've seen pictures, I've seen mock-ups of this over my entire career. You said the word resorbable. Whatever happened to the idea of resorbable plates and screws? It's just not practical, and it's too much of a load of a, a material and uh, with a plate when it starts to resorb you get a sterile abscess uh, from the uh, device so we used to use this stuff called macropore which uh, is a mesh that you heat up and you can wrap around the bone to hold bone graft and it was a uh, uh, very effective uh, in holding bone graft now we do things a little differently but the problem with it is that you started to get uh, it went dissolved too quickly you get sterile abscesses and you didn't know if they were infected or not and sometimes they would get contaminated uh, and become an infection so that went away the screws themselves are just not strong enough uh, the torque uh, that they, they would crack and there was no advantage to them. So I worked with the people in Linvitech. Bionics was the was a company from uh, Finland. I told them to put some sort of uh, metallic flakes in it so you could see it because you couldn't see these screws. You didn't know if they were, were seated or not. But if you, if you had some sort of a core uh, that was a little metallic, then you would be able to actually see it go in. Uh, and if it dissolved, it dissolved. But so it wasn't very practical for surgeons. We still use their tacks. They're, they're called a biofix pin uh, for very, very small yeah. uh, osteochondral fragments. And we still use them all, uh, all the way everywhere in pylons and ankles and elbows. Uh, wherever there's a very small fragment, you can't really get a screw in. Uh, you, you just use one of these and you melt it in and it works great. One of your products that I had the honor of getting to show to surgeons was the Alps plating system. Depew had it for a while, then spun it over to Zimmer. Again, amazing design aesthetic. You said the rose and the lime, and uh, I remember that distinctly from the, the cannulas on that set. Uh, tell me about that project. Um, so uh, <laughs> when uh, what, what really happened to me was I had a, that book also had a complete uh, a system in it uh, for plating uh, and also for external fixation. I had gone to a company called Ace. They wanted uh, my plates, but they had nails. And so they said, uh, you know, we don't want your nails, which is how I got to Smith Nephew. I was able to design plates uh, with uh, Ace. Uh, and Larry Bone, who was the chairman at um, Buffalo and was uh a very uh, big uh, AO individual had also left uh, the AO and started uh, working with me on all these plates with Ace and the screws. And we made them out of titanium alloy because we thought that was better uh, in terms of um, biology and uh, they, they were less stiff. And so Ace got bought by Depew after these plates and uh, it took a, a long time, but we ended up being able to make an entire system of fixation, you know, humerus and uh, uh, pylon and uh, tibial plateau and distal femur plates. Uh, but then J&J owned Depew and J&J bought Synthes, which is the AO uh, system. 
uh, and uh, the um, Department of Justice made them uh, divest themselves. And so they divested Alps to uh, Biomet, uh, and then Biomet got bought by uh, Zimmer. So although I, my nails have been with Smith Nephew from the get-go, and they still are, uh, I've gone through Ace, then Depew, then Biomet, and now Zimmer. Uh, and I think all the patents have expired on that. But the idea behind the Alps plates was that the lock plates would have fast guides, little guides to help you uh, put the screws in. And we try to come up with uh, very novel uh, uh, designs, again, uh, to help the surgeon uh, uh, and be really anatomic with a plate. Those were genius. It's so much easier than putting a, a locked cannula on a plate. Well done right. on that. Now, yeah, but those, those <laughs> so in all fairness, right? So. Uh, uh, there's a guy named George Orbe, uh, who, uh, is a very good friend of mine, uh, who, uh, is also, uh, a tremendous, uh, mind and designer He's a hand surgeon. Uh, and he, uh, started a company called hand innovations and came up with a, a DVR, a distal bowler, uh, plate. Uh, and, uh, that company, uh, came up with the fast guides. J&J bought uh, Hand Innovations one year, bought the whole company and got all his IP uh, and all his uh, engineers. Uh, and uh, those engineers ended up working with me on the ALP system. So those are, those are truly uh, innovation from Hand Innovation engineers and Dr. Orbe. And we use them because it's just brilliant, brilliant stuff. So that's not, I, I should not get the credit for the fast guys. Got some clinical questions for you, doctor. Sure. Any place for compression hip screws anymore? I think that, um, uh, you know, when you have a, a very uh, a complicated uh, uh, neck head fracture, you need to really uh, stabilize it like uh, a Powell Street. So if you have a vertical shear, um, and it's very hard to hold that. You can hold it with an intertan, but uh, most people would like uh, to do an open reduction now. Uh, and typically, uh, a lot of uh, trauma surgeons will uh, do an inferior medial plate. Dr. Collins has been very uh, prominent in that. Fixation for that uh, would be uh, a hip screw, side plate, and an anti-rotation uh, screw. Uh, but uh, for me, uh, that's about it. Uh, I think that for me, uh, basically, the the best thing to do is to be put an intertan in for almost all of these fractures, proximal uh, proximal femur fractures, and you can use it for a head and neck fracture as well. So if you have a, a shaft uh, and an inner inner troch or basal cervical, we used to use a retrograde nail in the femur and then a sliding hip screw. Now we just use uh, an intertan or a metatan and get the compression of the neck and still be able to fix the femur shaft fracture. Liz Frank, state of the art, transarticular screws, dorsal plate, arthrodesis or not, where are we? So Liz Frank uh, is very interesting. You say Liz Frank, but it uh, is either a, a dislocation or uh, a fracture dislocation. And for pure dislocations, Screws uh, work very well. Uh, I learned that technique from Dr. Hansen. When you have a fracture uh, associated with a dislocation, you really need a bridge plate. Uh, there's no way that a screw will work. So maybe uh, in the first uh, metatarsal cuneiform joint, you could use a screw. If that's not broken, it's just dislocated. But if the second and third are 
fractured, then you're going to need a dorsal plate or some combination of the two. I think that if the joint is decimated and pulverized, then you should go ahead and do a primary fusion at that time. Uh, But I don't do primary fusions uh, routinely for acute fractures. I'll, I'll put a lag screw in and back the lag screw off a turn or two. So I get an ankylosis and not uh, an arthrodesis. And I learned that from Dr. Hansen. And we have very rarely had to go back and take screws out or very rarely go back and uh, fuse these patients. I'm not a proponent of fusion. Displaced calcaneal fractures. Is the science settled on operative treatment for these? And what's your preference on your approach, extensile or sinus tarsi? The results, I think now, after, this is my life's work. So after 30, 35 years of work on this, I think uh, almost everybody would agree uh, that the functional outcome of a significantly displaced calcaneal fracture is operative treatment. The thing that really is uh, of interest now is the approach. And the approach we used to do for 20, 25 years was an extensile, uh, and it gave you really excellent reductions uh, and taught you how to fix the fracture, but you had wound complications. And you had to wait about two weeks for the wounds, you know, for the skin to calm down. Now, with a sinus tarsi, you get the fracture the same day, the next day, while the fracture is still very mobile. You go in through the front uh, with better fluoroscopy and better techniques uh, and uh, implants. You can go ahead and fix these uh, anatomically uh, for the simpler fractures uh, without the risk of the wound complication. I think, though, the problem for most people is if they learn the sinus tarsi and they don't know how to do the extensile, they can't uh, really fix the very complicated fractures of the ones that come to you late. And so those cases absolutely need an extensile, uh, and some of them need a primary fusion. So that's the difference now. Lock plating for distal femoral fractures. I've read concerns about the stiffness these constructs uh, can present. Is this a real issue? And if so, how to avoid a non-union? So it is a real issue. Uh, And uh, one of the problems is uh, I think that people have to remember that holes in plates are an option. Those holes are an option. You don't fill every hole with a screw. When you fill every hole with a screw, Uh, you have a very, very rigid uh, device. And when you add a lock screw that doesn't uh, move in the plate, uh, then you have an even more rigid device. Also, the femur, if the plate is too thick, uh, then that gives you an even stiffer construct. And so what happens is this construct sometimes are just way too thick, too stiff, excuse me. Uh, And uh, so uh, typically, we now uh, use uh, plates that are just a little thinner or titanium alloy, so a little more flexible, uh, and the modulus of elasticity is better. You fix it distally uh, at the articular block, and you can put as many screws there as you want. Uh, and then you either bridge a lot of comminution without any screws, or you selectively place locking screws or you overdrill the near cortex so that there's some sort of motion of the bone uh, with the screw, with the locked screw. And there are uh, a whole uh, host of uh, techniques. Dr. Botlang has been very big in this, as well as Dr. Gardner, in trying to uh, 
match uh, the modulus uh, of your construct uh, better to the bone. And I think that's an ongoing process. Uh, nothing's going to beat a nail uh, because it's a weight bearing. Uh, and uh, most people will try to get a nail in every time. But if it's too distal, uh, you cannot. And then you need a plate and you need to know how to do these things with uh, these type of uh, fixation devices. A doctor once told me that surgery is seeing. What is your thoughts on percutaneous plates? Is the uh, is less disruption worth the potential for neurovascular injury and increased difficulty of reduction? Right. So I think that uh, in 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 the part of the uh, of the bone where there's normal anatomy below, you know, so the fracture, then above the fracture, below the fracture, depending on it. Uh, once you bypass uh, the fracture, you, you reduce, let's say, the articular surface. Uh, and then you bypass the area of comminution, uh, the, then the plate can sit well on normal bone. You don't need to do a full dissection for that. So you can push the plate up. That's a percutaneous technique. And most of the plate devices have handles so you can steer it. And then under fluoroscopy, uh, you can make stab wounds and uh, put in the screws. What you have to remember is 30, 35 years ago, there was no real fluoroscopy. People were using standard x-rays on a portable machine or a Polaroid machine, or they had uh, a machine on the ceiling of the, of the operating room to take a static x-ray. There's no way you could figure out how to put a screw in percutaneously or a distal lock screw. Uh, you couldn't do any of that. You had to do everything open. So everything has advanced. All the innovation has advanced. I can tell you that all of the stuff we do would not be possible without these, uh, uh, you know, fourth and fifth generation fluoroscopic machines. What's your thoughts on clavicle fractures? Plating, rockwood pins, not fixing at all, anything? Uh, well, the vast majority of uh, clavicle fractures, I know Dr. McKee is going to get mad at me, but the vast majority of clavicle fractures don't need to be fixed. Uh, and uh, if they do need to be fixed, uh, you need to fix them anatomically so they're out to length, uh, and then you can plate them. And uh, we've written extensively on this, but an anterior inferior plate does not need to be taken out uh, if it's done correctly, whereas a superior plate bothers the patient and needs to be taken out. That's a second operation. And during the whole time the plate remains in, uh, it's very painful, especially in thin patients. So I would say 80, 85% of clavicles can be treated conservatively. And those that need to be operated need a plate. Uh, so they're at the length, not a screw or a pin. Uh, and uh, that plate needs to be placed anterior inferiorly. I've been in my share of unreamed nails over my career and reamed nails. Is the science pretty much settled on that? Do we need to ream every nail? Uh, yeah, but you don't need to put in a giant nail. So again, Quincher had an open section nail, so he had a you know ream to fit, so he would try to get diaphysis as much as he could. So he was reaming uh, to be able to change the metaphysis into a diaphysis. But uh, with, locked, uh, with, with closed section cannulated nails, it's an internal splint. So, and they're titanium alloy. They're incredibly strong now. Uh, and we, we've done a study, and most people like Dr. Liparachi and others have uh, done studies indicating that probably all you need is a 10 millimeter diameter nail. So in order to get that in without getting it incarcerated, uh, you need to ream to 11 and a half. So, you know, with a starting reamer, of nine and a half, you go 10, 11, 11 and a half, and then put the nail down and you're done. 
So there is honestly for me, there's and and the biology of the reaming helps heal the fracture. It creates an inflammatory process that just goes on. So uh, my feeling is there's no place uh, in uh, orthopedics for an unreamed nail. Does uh, fibular plating improve alignment after nailing distal tibia fractures? Sometimes. uh, If you have a very low fracture, and we've been nailing a lot of these fractures now. So we we do extreme nailing. Simple pylons, very distal metaphyseal fractures uh, will uh, uh, nail with a super patella nailing. If it's still unstable and we don't think a blocking screw is going to work and the fracture of the fibula is at the same level or it's unstable, we won't hesitate to either plate the fibula or if it's not common neutered, we'll put a nail in the fibula as well, retrograde nail. What's your biologic of choice to fill defects? What works the best in your hands, Dr. Sanders? Obviously, uh, autograft works the best. For me, I use a uh, uh, crushed Cancellus uh, fresh frozen allograft uh, that's soaked in PRP, uh, pla- uh, platelet-rich plasma, uh, with some antibiotic in it. That works the best for me because it's structural. It's a scaffolding, uh, and you can get ingrowth on it. There's so many gadgets out there over the years that were to treat non-unions. Uh, I've seen ultrasound, electrical stimulators. What do you think is the best strategy for a non-union? Well, you can try all of that conservatively, but if you get a non-union, some people have non-unions on x-ray, but functionally they're okay and they don't want any surgery. But if they're uh, un, you know, non-functional uh, and they can't, uh, you need to do surgery. Uh, if all these other methods fail, uh, exogen or uh, uh, you know, electrical stim, Uh, And then, honestly, if it's a a hypertrophic non-union where the body's trying to heal, but there's too much motion, you can generally just go put another uh, ream nail in, maybe a little bigger size nail for stiffness, and it usually heals. But if you have atrophics where there's just no biology left, you need to open it up. You need to take the fibrous plugs out of the ends of the bone. You need to ream the ends of the bone. uh, And then uh, either you, you put a nail in it or you plate it. Uh, and then you need to bone graft it. And then I would uh, use a uh, autograft basically from the iliac crest. Or if that doesn't work or I can't use it for whatever reason, uh, then I would use uh, Infuse, which is BMP2, which actually works with allograft. Uh, has a very, very high uh, uh, rate of success, at least in my hands. Just want to look big picture for a second, doctor. What are some techniques that, that took a long time to become mainstream and and what were the hurdles to get them accepted? And I'm, I'm thinking of super patella uh, tibial nail as an example. The first one was retrograde nailing of the femur because we were going through the knee. It just made a lot of sense when you had uh, obese uh, uh, people. To find a piriformis fossa was almost impossible. You had to put these people in a lateral decubitus position. And if they were polytrauma and they had lung injuries, you couldn't really do it. And then they were held in traction. But if there was supine on the table, you could do a retrograde nailing. And I actually learned this uh, from uh, a cloudy in uh, 86. But when I came back to the United States, and certainly the uh, AO did not approve this. So we did a whole series of these, and I presented them uh, in Davos at one of the meetings, I think in 88 or 89. And uh, Al Gova, who was the, the second in command under Mueller, stood up uh, at the podium and said, that retrograde nailing is a work of the devil and AO will never use it ever. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, of course, they have a very nice retrograde nail now. But um, nonetheless, uh, that was something that took a lot 
uh, uh, to get across. Uh, and then trochanteric nailing was another issue for us. Everybody was using a piriformis fossa. Uh, and uh, that was because when you use a, a size 14 or 15 nail and try to put it in through the troch, uh, the bend would explode the proximal femur. The trigen system had a very, very small diameter nail, uh, and you could put the bend in and get the nail in, and it was so much easier to go to the troke uh, that uh, we started popularizing that. And I remember at an, a, a, at an OTA meeting presenting that data and Winquist getting up and telling me that no one will ever use this technique. Uh, so now, uh, when we got to super patella nailing, which is obviously easier uh, for a number of reasons, and it allows for better alignment and you're not struggling. Uh, there, I would say, although there was some uh, pushback, there was a lot less pushback by people because they understood that uh, and this might be a better way now, having seen retrograde, having seen trochanteric, they're, they're more open to that idea. And every manufacturer of every uh, uh, implant na- nailing system has a super patella, a trochanteric, and a retrograde nailing system. So I'm very proud of that. <laughs> yes, you should be. Seminal work. Any orthopedic trauma fads you would love to forget? Uh, forget. Oh, God. Honestly, uh, they all have their place. They usually just get superseded. You try something right. and it may not work. Then you try to modify it and upgrade it. I know one thing that uh, I thought was a great idea but didn't work was a Brooker Wills nail. This is a nail uh, that uh, went down. Uh, it was hollow. It was it was uh, square actually, and it went down. And then you deployed these fins before you did this locking. Yes. And it was a really neat idea, and I thought it really should work well. Uh, but the fins didn't hold, and the nail was too hollow, and it would bend. Uh, and so you would always have to take it out. Because if the fracture didn't heal, uh, the leg would then deform. And if you want to uh, uh, think about one uh, uh, thing that didn't work, was it was called the disco nail, the discotech nail. It was the blow-up nail. It was a brilliant idea. You, you put a nail in that was corrugated, yeah. uh, and then you blow it up with saline, and it would uh, uh, conform to the shape of the inner diameter of the canal. And you wouldn't need this locking, and it would heal. Uh, the problem, though, was that when it broke, you couldn't get it out of the of the arm or the leg uh, because it was uh, there was no way to get it out. It was all this metal, and uh, that that was a disaster. So that kind, if you can't, if you, <laughs> for anybody that's listening, when you do a device, if you can't get it out, you better stop and think about ever wanting to put it in because you put them in, you can't get them out. You got a big problem. <laughs> I've talked with a bunch of joint reconstruction guys about what, what do they thought the biggest breakthrough over the last 30 years uh, in that sphere was. And, and almost to a, a T, they said Crosslink Poly. I'm just curious what your thought is on the trauma space. If you had to pick one breakthrough, one innovation that you think changed things more than any other thing, what would it be? When you look at uh, orthopedic trauma as a whole, uh, through its uh, continuum, it, it's the development of orthopedic trauma as a science uh, and a discipline. BAO uh, were instrumental in doing that, and it's it's a whole continuum because it's just not one thing. It's you know plates are anatomic, locked screws are a tremendous advantage. Nails are now closed section cannulated, titanium alloy, double locked nails 
uh, this whole system, uh, these two systems, uh, really uh, together, uh, we stand on the uh, on the shoulders of giants. You know, Kuncher and uh, Mueller, Tony Russell, uh, all these folks uh, just uh, really up the game uh, and, and innovated to allow us to do all this. So I honestly, I don't think it's one standout thing other than uh, Mueller started this whole ball rolling uh, in a way that, you know, individual surgeons can do individual things. But when you can create, um, and, and all the companies do this now, when you can create product that can go uh, and 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 a normal orthopedic surgeon can use this to get an excellent result on a patient, you know, whether it's in uh, Nebraska or it's in, uh, I don't know, Afghanistan or, or, or you know, somewhere in uh, Sweden, uh, and it's consistent, uh, that is really uh, the advantage. And I think that's where we're at today. Uh, we can reach so many patients and take care of so many problems consistently and consistently get a good outcome. Uh, it has to do with all the uh, design surgeons and the educators and the teachers uh, that uh, that have uh, come before me. And I'm, I'm really uh, humbled to be able to have played a, a small role in that uh, going forward. Well, you've played a small role in a lot of things. You were president of the OTA. Uh, what was that experience like? <laughs> uh, it was very nice. It's, uh, it's an honor uh, to be chosen by your peers to run their organization. And so uh, it was a very exciting time. We were able to do a lot of uh, educational uh, things uh, and, uh, again, bring more education uh, and innovation to, uh, to more orthopedic surgeons. We uh, were involved in a lot of courses and a lot of uh, publications, uh, books, and uh, really tremendous uh, back then. We, we, I'd like to believe that the people before me a couple of years before me and, and the presence a couple of years after me, the, you know, the five years uh, that I was in the middle there, we really uh, made uh, the OTA uh, a very large international force in orthopedic trauma. Uh, so uh, I'm, I was very uh, blessed to be part of that. Well, speaking of courses, your current solutions in orthopedic trauma course is on its 16th, 17th year? Yeah, 17th year. COVID kind of screwed it up a little bit, but uh, yeah, that's an annual course. It's more focused on implants. Part of the problem is that a lot of the courses now are sponsored by companies, and so they only show their company products. So we try to uh, show a lot of uh, different product uh, to solve the same problem. So different nails by different manufacturers, different plates, different techniques and, uh, you know, fresh frozen cadaver labs. That's uh, very good. And uh, the other advantage of that is uh, I get to pick my faculty and I get to pick my, uh, my past fellows and my friends. Uh, and uh, it's just uh, a really uh, a good time. It's a more of a low key course than, a, than an academy course or even an OTA course. So it's just kind of fun. I believe you were also instrumental in the formation of the Florida Orthopedic Society back in 1992. Where is it now? And, you know, what's the mission? I know some of these societies are, are challenged with more and more surgeons becoming employees. And, and then what does their paradigm look like? Uh, that was a long time ago. So the society has been around forever. Uh, I became the executive director uh, at the request of one of uh, presidents, and uh, I kind of ran it administratively for several years. That society is a big society now because Florida has a huge ingrowth of population now. So there are a lot of orthopedists, and that society 
uh, works with the Florida Medical Society to honestly protect our rights as orthopedic surgeons uh, and make sure that we're able to practice the medicine we want and that the legislation on a state level doesn't uh, destroy practice of medicine, which uh, they're more than happy to do. So as you pointed out, uh, it's becoming harder and harder for uh, people to be an independent practitioner. Uh, Certainly as a single practitioner, uh, you can't get insurance contracts. It's very hard or if you do, the rates are so low, it's impossible. So you have to join a group, uh, and the groups uh, have a tremendous uh, difficulty with overhead. And so they end up either working for a hospital system or working uh, for a uh, uh, university, or they work for a uh, uh, insurance uh, company. So there are very few uh, large uh, orthopedic groups left. My group, Florida Orthopedic Institute, of uh, which I'm uh, president uh, is uh, the largest group uh, in the state of Florida. We have uh, 90 physicians, over 1,000 employees, and um, uh, 20 locations. Uh, and we're, I think, the 13th largest uh, group in the country now, independent orthopedic practice. You've been doing this a while. How has the business of medicine changed your practice over the years? Well, we've spent a lot of time making sure that the business of medicine does not change our practice. Uh, because uh, if you're if you're not careful, it will. Uh, and 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 if you're if you don't grow, unfortunately, uh, in in today's society, you know whether you're uh, in whatever industry you're in, if you don't if you don't consolidate and grow, uh, you'll find yourself uh, obsolete and out of business because you won't have any contracts. And the business of medicine is unfortunately run by insurance companies. Now I've seen this uh, during my lifetime. Uh, it wasn't very prominent. And then the HMOs uh, suddenly caught a fire during the Clinton era. Uh, and now the insurance companies dictate everything. Uh, they dictate your payment. And sometimes they don't pay you, even though they're supposed to. Uh, they'll tell you whether you can do a procedure or not, uh, all these things. So uh, in order to get a seat at the table, you need to be very large. And uh, when you're very large, in addition to being able to uh, spread the cost in terms of the overhead to a C-suite, and you can get uh, insurance people working for you uh, that can talk the language with the insurance companies. You're able to get better deals on health insurance, your better uh, deals in terms of hiring and firing, and just the efficiencies of a large-scale operation allow you to continue to practice medicine the way it should be practiced as an independent private practitioner who then as a backdrop of this large business that manages the business of medicine, a management corporation. And if you don't have that, then the only other way you can work that way uh, is at a hospital system. But you have absolutely no voice uh, in a hospital employment system or at a large university system for that matter. I could think of no better person to ask this while we're just looking back and, and what needs to be done now. The old surgeon entrepreneurial model was to to go to an implant manufacturer and develop product. And that's clearly changed over the years with the limited resources. Any advice to surgeons out there listening that have an idea? Uh, how do you go about monetizing that? So that's where I'm at now. So I'm, I'm happy to explain that. So those when I designed all these nails and plates, that was the golden years where the uh, Implant manufacturers came to the surgeon and asked you to help them. Uh, They don't need the help anymore because to a large degree, uh, this stuff is a commodity, right? Mm. And uh, the insurance companies have pressured the uh, price pressures uh, have prevented them from innovating because they can't transfer the cost 
to the uh, patient and to the insurance company. So uh, if you have an idea, uh, it becomes very expensive. I've given this lecture uh, at the uh, academy uh, several times now, but if you have an idea, you have to make sure that the idea is novel. You have to go do a patent search and make sure there's no prior art. Uh, and then you have to uh, discuss it and try to decide whether it's worthwhile to go that route, because that route is going to cost you about a million bucks uh, and in the hopes that you get somebody to buy it from you. Uh, so you then uh, need to get a patent attorney and try to get a patent. You need to get a proof of concept and make sure it works. Uh, and then you need to get an engineer and start uh, getting a design history file so you can design something uh, that also will require you to get manufacturers who don't really want to do small uh, units, but you're going to need to uh, uh, get a small uh, amount of a product and biomechanically test it to make sure it works. Uh, and then when you have all that, uh, you have to think about uh, getting a 510K. And if it's a, if it's a unique product and, it, and the FDA tells you you need an investigational device exemption, an IDE, you'll never get it uh, on the market because you can't even get a CPT code for it if you get it on the market. So IDEs usually cost between three and five million bucks to get done. So uh, you want to get something that can be 510K approved. Uh, in order to get a 510K approved, you need to manufacture the final product and you need to have it sterilized. Uh, and that stuff is going to cost you two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 in today's dollars. So uh, either you need a lot of money or you need some people to invest in you. Uh, and then once you get the product, what do you do with the product? Uh, if you get all the way through that, uh, you spent that $750,000 million dollars. Uh, now you need distribution, you need sales force, you need an independent distributor and not keep it on the, on the shelf, but be able to get it into the hospital to begin with uh, and then get somebody to use it so you get sales. And if you get sales and you get EBITDA, then maybe a company will buy it from you. But if they do, you got to be really careful when they buy it from you because they'll usually say if it's worth something, they'll give you half up front and then they're going to sell it. And then you get a royalty on the sales, but they could shelve it. And never sell it. And so you've done all this and they basically gave you your money back. So it's you got to really, really have a, a strong desire and really have something that's worthwhile uh, that you truly believe in uh, to be able to do this. And the last person I know uh, that was able to do this, well, two people. One was Dr. Orbe uh, did this with hand innovation uh, and Dr. Russell did it with Enforce. But it's not easy. It's It's a lot of work a lot of time away from business and uh, a lot of frustration, but that's how it gets done. And that's the only way it's going to get done now because the companies won't spend the money on the research. Yeah, that's great advice. I had a surgeon actually tell me that happened to him. Uh, he developed a product, the company bought it from him and they did not want it to cannibalize uh, another segment of their business. So they just shelved it. Yep. 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 So he better have gotten all his money up front. <laughs> <laughs> So I got to ask you this, Dr. Sanders, are you still taking trauma call? Oh, I'm still taking trauma call. I only do it. Uh, I still do it uh, uh, twice a month, but I still take trauma call. But I, I mean, I used to take, you know, 10, 12 calls, uh, sometimes 15 calls a month for years and years and years. But uh, uh, there was a period of time where I stopped a little bit. I was just doing too much in our business. 
uh, our CEO passed away and uh, I ended up running uh, the company for a while with the board uh, and I had to back off of uh, uh, trauma call. But uh, now my partners don't uh, really want me to uh, take call. They think I'm over the hill, but uh, I still enjoy it. So I, I take a few days a month. Uh, and spend time with my fellows and do fresh cases as opposed to all this complex reconstruction I do in my elective practice. It's a lot of fun. Well, you have to have a commemorative event, doctor, on that last night. Put the put the pager in a wood chipper or something. Well, I don't know. I think the uh, the OTA is coming to Tampa in 2022, and I'm the local host, so maybe... Uh, you'll hear something then. Wow, that's exciting stuff. Doctor, you have worked with so many reps over the years that have been in and out of your OR and your clinic. Uh, any advice to, to those uh, folks listening as to what has really represented to you the, the pinnacle of that uh, craft over the years? What makes a good rep to you? Marshall Simmons. I'm giving him a shout out. <laughs> the oh, all right. I'm writing that down. Best, best rep uh, I've ever had. Uh, he uh, is just... Uh, driven, knowledgeable. He gets things done. He is always there. He never complains. Uh, he uh, has everything. It just he, He's part of the team uh, at Tampa General, uh, and that really uh, is uh, above and beyond. That kind of a rep, right? You just, you just get used to what they do and how they do it, and that's, uh, that's the, uh, the template for me for a rep. Uh, they're always there. Uh, they never really complain. They're very helpful. They're extremely knowledgeable. They work seamlessly with the team. It's just it's phenomenal. Dr. Sanders, you know, we haven't even scratched the surface of your CV. I mean, your editor-in-chief work at the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma, the publications, just unbelievable how many things you're cited on and just your impact on every aspect of orthopedic trauma. I just wanted to say well done, and I really appreciate you coming on the show uh, to share your story. What do you want your legacy to be? Oh, my legacy are uh, my fellows, uh, really. Um my fellows are, uh, we, we've trained over 100 fellows, and uh, we've tried to uh, teach them the way we do things in Tampa, and uh, they're all over the country uh, and in some parts of the world. They live on. They're chiefs of uh, orthopedic trauma. They're chairmen. Uh, they're editors of uh, Rockwood and Green. Uh, somebody's eventually going to take over for me in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. Uh, and they're going to carry the ball. The genealogy uh, is just, and the family tree is just fantastic. And that that really is uh, what what it is. You pass the torch to them. And so that, to me, that's the legacy beyond everything else. You know, the implants will come come and go, but uh, the human the human factor is 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 the best part of the whole well, deal. Your statue is going to be prominent in the uh, trauma wing of the Orthopedic Hall of Fame. Uh, it was a real honor to have you on and to hear. Hear your thoughts on all this stuff, Doctor. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. What an amazing conversation that was, and an honor to be able to ask questions of Dr. Roy Sanders as he casts quite a shadow in the trauma space. What a wealth of knowledge and wisdom he brings to the table. There was so much gold in that exchange. I love what he said right there at the end about his fellows were his legacy. And you know what? 
that was profound to me because we are all surrounded at some level with informal fellows, people that we have a voice in their life, that we have some form of mentorship relationship with. And what a perfect bookend to what we talked about at the beginning because it is critical to know where people are before you can provide any guidance on where they should go. And the only way to find that out is questions, listening, and empathy. Great stuff. Now, before we close up shop today, I want to share with you something I think is super, super cool. MyMedicalImages.com forward slash AAOS. It is 2021. Why are we still burning all of these discs? Cloud-based image software for the patient's It's about time. Why is this a benefit to the patient? Well, they no longer have to worry about, did I forget to bring my disc? Is the data on it corrupted? Oh, that image came from the VA. It doesn't communicate with our system. Never again. These images integrate with everybody's PAC system. They're safely and securely in the cloud and portable. The patient can then go to any surgeon with these images and easily share them. The account for the surgeon is free is free and is super helpful for their workflow is that they no longer have to worry about managing these discs. If you're a rep listing, tell your surgeon about it. This is great stuff and is share worthy. MyMedicalImages.com forward slash AAOS. A huge thank you, Device Nation. Appreciate each and every one of you. Look forward to next week. Going to give you a practical example of what you can do with that whole question concept we talked about today. And we're going to open up the can on active listening. Is it just as simple as listening to what the other person is saying? Oh, no, it's not. It's going to be awesome. I hope you all have a good day, a good week, and good selling. Device Nation.